Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of New Books in Political Science. I'm your host, Joe Renoir. Uh, My guest today is Dr. Matthew Lacombe. We'll discuss his new book, which is titled Firepower, How the NRA Turned Gun Owners into a Political Force, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. Uh, Dr. Matthew Lacombe is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Barnard College of Columbia University. In addition to Firepower, he's the author, pardon me, co-author of Billionaires and Stealth Politics, a book that details the political preferences and behavior of U.S. billionaires. Uh, Dr. Lacombe, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. It's great to be on. Am I saying your name correctly? You are. Yes. Great. Uh, you great. Are, yeah. great. Before we get to your new book, uh, tell us a bit about your background, your interests, and why you took on this subject. Yeah. So uh, this this book uh, was a, a sort of product of my, my dissertation project, um, um, which I wrote uh, when I was a grad student at Northwestern. Um, and the, the motivation for the book, I'm often asked, you know, if I have a, a background or sort of substantive personal interest in firearms. And I wish that, you know, I could have had a really compelling preface to the book explaining my personal connection to the topic. Uh, but alas, I, I don't have that. Um, um, uh, my interests are really in understanding um, um, the sort of multifaceted and, and sort of difficult to pinpoint nature of political power. Um, specifically, uh, as it pertains, uh, in this case, to organized groups um, and to their relationships with political parties. And so as I started thinking through that topic um, in a sort of broader way, I, I started sort of brainstorming cases uh, that I think could you know, uh, be fruitful ones through which to develop some new uh, insights about interest group power. Um, and although there's some compelling work um, on gun politics and the NRA, no doubt. I was somewhat surprised to see that you know this book um, had not yet been written, uh, and and it seemed to me that the NRA um, would be a really uh, useful case uh, potentially through which to 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 learn some some new things about interest group power, both uh, because it's uh, the sort of group that you know at least until um, the past couple of years, I think uh, many people would 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 identify as one of the sort of first groups that comes to mind if they were asked to think of a powerful interest group, um, um, and then also second, you know, it, its power I think doesn't in my view, uh, fit particularly well um, with a sort of prevailing uh, wisdom about the sorts of things uh, that that uh, lead to groups being influential. Um, and so that sort of combination of being seemingly influential, but not really neatly fitting into existing stuff uh, um, on the topic made it, um, um, uh, you know, an attractive case. And then, of course, that's not to mention that it's one uh, that, that, you know, uh, in the U.S. has, uh, I think we could agree, unfortunate, you know, um, um, relevance um, time and time again because of, of you know, the state of, of gun violence um, in the country. Um, um, so, yeah, so that's how I ended up, that's how I ended up on this topic. Um, 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 and it's been an interesting journey. Well, you know, it's a subject that elicits strong emotions uh, uh, um, among who, the people I would call for, for simplicity's sake, 
uh, the gun rights crowd and the gun control crowd and really everyone in between, you know, we could compare it with a subject like abortion or immigration. These elicit very strong emotions. So how does one approach this as a researcher? Uh, you don't, uh, This is the dreaded research question that <laughs> scholars either want to handle or they don't. But I mean this in a, in a layperson's sense of you know, how does one maintain a balance? Because I think you really do quite well in this book. This is not a book of advocacy as I read it. It's a book about here's what the NRA is doing. How, here is how they're influencing the political process. Uh, it's all above board. And uh, just talk a little bit about how does one approach this as a researcher and be as balanced as one can. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I appreciate that it, that it comes through that way and I'm happy to hear that. Um, uh, you know, I, I'd say it, it, it is interesting because often, you know, if I'm at a, a, a cocktail party or, you know, more recently as a zoom uh, cocktail party, zoom happy hour, I'll get questions uh, when folks hear that I wrote this book saying, Oh, is it for or against the NRA? Which I think just sort of speaks to the, the, the sort of predominant <laughs> look that a lot of, that, that sort of shapes our, our political discourse today, which is that a book on a topic like this must be for or against. Um, um, and I, I'm not so much interested in, in um, um, you know, whether, I mean, I am on a personal level, but from a scholarly angle, I'm, I'm more so interested in understanding how the NRA does what it does and how it's developed that ability historically um, than I am about whether, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's advocacy is good or bad um, um, or whether the NRA is good or bad or, or even more fundamentally, whether gun control is good or bad. And I of course have opinions and it's been, you know, certainly hard at at times um, um, to not, you know, not uh, uh, engage in, in more advocacy. And, and, you know, when asked, I don't hide my views, but I, but I didn't think that they needed to come through in the book itself for me to really accomplish what I wanted to accomplish, which again was sort of unpacking um, um, how the NRA um, has been able to, to sort of build and exercise influence over gun policy over time. And, and, you know, so that involved for one thing, you know, the use of systematic data. Um, so I'm sure, you know, we'll get into the methods I used a bit. Um, um, but I, 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 you know, I, I think there, the, the book includes some sort of sort of rich um, discussion, in my view, of, of the sorts of appeals that gun rights advocates make. But it also analyzes the appeals that the NRA has made, um, you know, over the course of the 20th and in the 21st century um, in a systematic fashion where researcher bias, um, um, you know, can't easily creep in um, uh, because of the sort of nature of the methods I used. So I think that helped, you know, going from the data um, and then trying to explain what I see in the data, um, 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 you know, rather than um, the other way around. Uh, um, um, uh, and, 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 you know, then trying to also sort of um, check myself and probably be extra safe, um, you know, to think, it, 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 Am I making a claim that seems uncharitable uh, in a particular case? Am I making this claim in, in you know, a provocative way, or am I, um, um, you know, trying to to frame it in a way that I think is, you know, most defensible and that would be hard for for anyone um, reading the evidence I provide to to um, really disagree with? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a fair a fair take. I think it's um, uh, something that's a challenge to any researcher. It's a question I think you would have to face at the outset. You'd say, well, am I writing an argument? Am I, am I taking a position uh, or am I seeing, as you've suggested, where the, where the data take me? And we can get to more of that in a moment, but I wonder if you could just take us back a bit. The, the NRA that we see today is a politically very savvy organization. 
It has uh, a membership role that it says, I believe is around 5 million, but it's one that I would say punches above its weight. Uh, before we get to what it actually does today and how it builds up an identity among its members, how it lobbies and so on, talk a bit about the, the NRA of a century ago and your study begins really, I'd say, around the 1930s and 40s. Uh, this, the NRA of a century ago was connected in some ways to the U.S. government, interested in more traditional things, rifle practice and marksmanship. Take us through a little bit of that timeline of how it becomes a different kind of organization. Sure. So I break the NRA's history into two major phases. The first, I, I describe quoting an NRA official as the NRA's quasi-governmental phase. And then the second phase, um, uh, which started in the late 1970s, I describe as its partisan phase. Uh, and one thing I, I do want to be clear about is that the NRA opposed gun control, and it did so actively across both of those phases. And sometimes in popular discourse, there's a notion um, that the NRA of, of, of earlier years um, um, was either apolitical or even was supportive of gun control. And I don't find that to be the case. I find that, you know, even when the, the sort of first attempts to pass federal level gun legislation were launched in the 1930s. The NRA was an active opponent of those laws. And when it did eventually um, voice support for some of them, that only came after it had played a role in, in substantially weakening them um, to the point that they were, um, in some instances, largely toothless. So I do want to be clear that the NRA was political throughout that period. Having said that, it did not take political sides until later in its history. Um, in its early years, it, 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 it kind of stayed out of the partisan fray. So it opposed gun control, but it didn't take partisan sides. And there were um, really a couple reasons for that, in my view. Um, one is that the NRA didn't have a clear partisan home. Uh, gun control, uh, when it was on the political agenda, didn't really split the parties in a way that it does now. Uh, but second, and perhaps even more importantly, the NRA's relationship with the government during its quasi-governmental phase strongly disincentivized it from taking political sides. So throughout this period, the NRA um, um, served as an organization that would administer firearms training programs. It was the governing, the official governing body of, of the U.S. shooting sports. And so it, it, it organized and promoted um, lots of, of shooting competitions. Um, it also benefited from um, um, uh, government programs such as a surplus firearm program in which NRA members had exclusive rights to purchase surplus military weapons at low costs, uh, which obviously provided a rather strong incentive um, for some individuals to join the organization. Um, and so because of those ties to the government, because of the benefits um, that the NRA received from the government, um, um, it had a, a it had a desire to, to not, you know, um, end up closely aligned with one side in a way that could call into question those benefits, um, um, you know, if if the other side were to gain power. Uh, and, and so throughout that early period, the NRA, despite sort of vocally, again, um, opposing gun control, it, it, it nonetheless um, didn't choose sides. Then for reasons we may get into later, um, you know, in the, in the 70s, the NRA's ties, the, the, six, the late 60s into the 70s, the NRA's ties to the federal government. Um, really declined. Um, and and that provided, that, that sort of removed its prior disincentive to taking sides um, um, and, and, and eventually led to the situation we see today in which the NRA is indeed uh, a partisan organization in which it, it, it is sort of part of the GOP um, um, partisan coalition. Yeah, I found that to be one of the more interesting parts of the, at least the background, the, the timeline about the, the quasi-governmental phase 
uh, yes, they were interested in gun control legislation. You, you describe how in the uh, the bad old days of the 1930s that there were efforts to get at organized crime. And actually, of course, that predated the 30s into the, the creation of the uh, FBI in the 20s. But that, you know, no endorsement of candidates, no endorsement of parties. Um, this seems like a an organization that really is a rifle association rather than a political rifle association sure. as it becomes. Um and then you describe how uh, there's another gun control uh, conversation in the 1960s and 70s over the rise in crime, uh, the 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 uh, uh, you might say the the uh, falling apart of, of of the urban environment in America. And there's this great revolt that that's sometimes called the the revolt of Cincinnati, uh, where it sounds like a, the you know the new guard of the NRA said, "Look, we're no longer the organization we once were." Uh, we have to do something different. So can you talk a little bit about that major turning point? Yeah. So the revolt at Cincinnati is this this fascinating um, and, and truly dramatic moment in NRA history in which uh, control of the organization was seized from a group of, of pre-existing leaders often described as the old guard uh, by a group of so-called new guard leaders um, um, who were lower level officials within the organization um, um, who who took advantage of, of, of uh, loopholes in organizational bylaws um, to, to sort of seize control of the organization at Cincinnati in a, in a sort of organizational coup d'etat. Um, 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 folks like uh, Harlan Carter and, and Neil Knox led that effort. Um, and, and, and the reason that that came about uh, uh, can be traced back uh, to the 1960s, as you noted. So, you know, gun control uh, was, was relevant. Uh, in the 1930s, then it was largely off the federal agenda through the 40s and 50s. Then things changed in the 1960s. Um, you have high-profile political assassinations combined with actually, you know, statistically increasing rates of crime, um, uh, all of which came together to, to thrust gun control back onto the national political agenda. The NRA at that time, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, opposed those gun control efforts um, and did so uh, with a lot of success. Uh, eventually, the Gun Control Act of 1968 uh, did pass, uh, but it took five plus years of effort. Um, 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 and, uh, you know, it, it was a real effort. That was a real process for that to go through. And it, and it looked possible that no uh, gun control legislation, even, even after five years of attempts, um, um, would pass. So although that was a loss to the NRA, it certainly uh, um, won some victories uh, prior to that moment in the 1960s. Those victories and its, its general opposition to gun control at that time started to earn it the reputation that it has among some today um, as, as a strong opponent of gun control. Um, it became a sort of controversial organization um, that many individuals um, 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 felt compelled to even protest at the time. When those same individuals found out uh, that the NRA was benefiting uh, from, from government patronage of the sort that, that we discussed a few minutes ago, um, um, they called that into question. Uh, um, um, and, and, and that sort of combined with a new general uh, military uh, environment in which the sorts of programs the NRA was promoting no longer seemed as relevant um, um, to uh, you know, national defense needs. Um, um, all of which led to the NRA's funding being slashed. Um, um, and so when that funding was slashed because of the aftermath of those 1960s battles over gun control, its prior disincentive um, um, to enter, you know, against entering partisan politics uh, uh, was removed. At that same time, 
uh, an insurgent conservative movement called the New Right was sort of gaining momentum in American politics, um, sort of taking over gradually the Republican Party um, in ways that that fit really well with the general sort of political worldview that the NRA had adopted at a long time for a long time. Uh, um, and one of the issues, one of the sort of conservative social issue stances that the New Right promoted was opposition to gun control. So the new rights rise um, um, within Republican politics um, um, sort of occurred simultaneously with the NRA's uh, uh, break, breaking, you know, uh, diminishing relationship with the federal government. Um, um, and, and the new right provided a sort of route of entry into conservative Republican politics at the same time that the NRA, um, 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 you know, was sort of freed from uh, its prior incentive to, to avoid such politics. Having said that, longtime NRA leaders were, were not so eager uh, uh, to enter partisan politics. They wanted to respond to the, the funding challenges created um, by the slashing of those government subsidies um, by potentially pivoting away from politics and becoming more of an outdoors organization. Um, the New Guard had the exact opposite approach in mind. They wanted to become more ideological, more partisan. They wanted to invest more in the organization's uh, political infrastructure. They wanted to, to, to form uh, alliances with the New Right, which, by the way, was very effective uh, uh, at fundraising, uh, having sort of uh, pioneered uh, direct mail fundraising techniques. Um, and so that that conflict uh, sort of played out throughout the course of the mid 1970s, um, um, and then it came to a head uh, in Cincinnati in 1977 when the New Guard sort of seized control once and for all. Um, following uh, that revolt, the New Guard um, uh, uh, rather quickly uh, became more partisan, invested more in the organization's political infrastructure, um, and, and most notably entered partisan politics with its first ever. Uh, with the organization's first ever endorsement of a political candidate, which was Ronald Reagan uh, in 1980. Yeah, you know, as you're describing that, it it, it certainly brings to mind the uh, post-1960s discussion among a lot of organizations and groups of people in America. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, the religious right. Uh, there, there were plenty of uh, religious Americans who said, well, we don't want to get into politics. And Others were saying, no, we're being pulled into it by the times. And it seems like there's a parallel conversation in the NRA about uh, now is the time for us to join together to take on these kinds of things that uh, maybe we've tried to avoid politically. And, and, and now it just seems in retrospect, well, of course, the one fit with the other very, very well. It wasn't so obvious at the time, was it, that the, the GOP and NRA identity would be so closely aligned? Right. It does seem in retrospect, not all that surprising. Um, um, uh, but at the time, I think it really did take hard work on the part of political entrepreneurs to sort of uh, uh, see those connections, identify those connections and figure out how to how to pull them together. Uh, so I, I certainly think there were, uh, you know, you could say long term sort of structural factors that, that did really incentivize um, um, organizations and social groups like religious conservatives or gun rights activists um, um, to alter their approach to politics. Uh, but at the same time, none of that occurred automatically. Um, 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 and, and I think in both cases, uh, um, you know, the stories of how that came together um, are pretty fascinating because you had, uh, you know, in this case, you, but, but I think this is largely true in the case of the religious right as well. You know, you had um, um, sort of political entrepreneurs, ambitious actors within those movements themselves uh, who wanted to take 
you know, their groups in, in new directions. Um, you also had partisan politicians, some of whom wanted to really seize onto those, those newly um, socially conservative outlooks. Um, um, others of whom, you know, the more sort of Rockefeller wing um, didn't really want the Republican party go in that direction. Um, and then you had, you know, the sort of new right activists who, who were neither part of the Republican party nor part of those organizations, those movements um, themselves, um, but really did the, the sort of coalitional work of, 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 of establishing ties across those groups. And um, I think the, the new rights history and role in, in politics is, is uh, fairly well documented and appreciated. Um, and I hope one thing that this book contributes is, is, is uh, uh, shining a bit more light on um, how the NRA fits into all of that um, and how the new rights rise um, 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 impacted the politics of the NRA. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a bit about the NRA that we see today. I, I think of the NRA as a, a politically powerful, but I think you show very clearly in this book that it's not maybe for the reasons that I might think. I, I think uh, those of us who look at uh, interest group politics or lobbying uh, as, a, as, as armchair observers, we think, oh, well, it just matters how many uh, financial resources an organization has, or how much how much money are they dispensing around the political process? Uh, talk a bit about how politically powerful the NRA is and how maybe financial power is less significant than these other kinds of uh, mobilizational influences you describe. Yeah, so I think there's a prevailing view, um, certainly in public discourse, but also to a pretty great extent, and justifiably so, to be clear, um, um, uh, within the academic literature, suggesting that by and large, um, um, financial resources are key to group influence. Now, and that doesn't always mean, uh, for example, that there's sort of quid pro quo stuff going on where organizations are buying off politicians. But there's a sort of general sentiment that um, those with the most financial resources um, are going to find ways to translate them into uh, political power. Uh, and what I find is that the NRAs, and that, and that in popular discourse, that is certainly often applied to the NRA. What I find is that the NRAs, um, that, that financial explanations of the NRA's influence don't, don't really hold up and are at, at sort of, at, at best sort of offer incomplete um, um, explanations of, of the group's influence. And I say that for a few reasons. One uh, is that although the NRA spends money on politics, um, its spending does not really, is not really what causes it to stand out relative to other groups. There are a lot of organized groups um, that contribute quite a bit uh, uh, to, to electoral campaigns and that don't seem to have the same level of influence as the NRA. Uh, moreover, the NRA's influence in politics actually predates its, its foray into political spending. So it seems like something else is going on. And if you dig into, and you know, I, this isn't an original insight on my part, but if you, if you, if you dig in a little more closely and you look at existing work on, on important historical gun policy battles, what quickly, what quickly becomes clear is that the, 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 I think that the, the key to the NRA's influence uh, is actually that its members, that its supporters, mass level gun rights supporters are incredibly politically engaged, incredibly politically dedicated. Um, so although a majority of Americans support gun control, the minority who opposes it, um, the minority of, of Americans who are gun rights supporters um, um, have historically at least been much more um, um, active uh, on behalf of that stance. And so the NRA's ability to mobilize uh, mass action um, on behalf of its gun rights cause um, has for a long time been, been pretty key 
uh, to its ability to advance gun rights. I mean, it was also key to be clear to its its uh, alignment with the Republican Party. So part of why NRA supporters were, were very attractive to Republican politicians, to conservative um, 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 actors in the new right, was that they, they comprised this group of, of really politically active and dedicated and unified individuals, the sort of group um, um, that most strategic political actors uh, would want to have on their side. Um, and so what I find is that, you know, the NRA has, has historically advanced its gun rights cause basically in two main ways. One is by launching mass mobilization campaigns um, um, on behalf of gun rights, um, in which its, its, its supporters um, flood uh, policymakers um, um, with letters and phone calls and messages um, 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 stating their views. And then the other is, is, is um, um, through the Republican Party, um, which again is an indirect consequence of uh, its, its members' um, um, intense political dedication. Um, I think the, 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 having said all of that, I, I think the real insight of the book when it comes to the, the NRA's, you know, use of, of its members, of its supporters um, to influence gun politics is, is the book's explanation of how exactly the NRA uh, does that and why it's been successful at it. So, I mean, of course, every interest group wants to mobilize its supporters into politics um, and would like to have a politically dedicated membership. Um, it's not like the NRA you know, was the first group to, to, to think of that idea. Um, um, so what makes it sort of stand out? Well, I argue that um, one thing the NRA did was uh, to, to create a distinct politicized uh, social identity around gun ownership. So for a lot of its supporters, guns aren't simply tools that they might use for recreation or self-defense, uh, but instead are, are symbols of, of who those individuals are, how they see their place in the world, um, um, and what they really uh, believe in and value. Um, um, uh, moreover, that identity that many gun owners share is seen as, as very relevant to politics. So we all hold lots of identities. You know, um, I, I was a distance runner and high school and college, and I still do that now. And I think there's certainly an identity shared among runners, uh, but I've never cast a vote, um, um, you know, as a runner. Uh, um, um, and you could imagine a world in which, you know, gun owners um, share an identity, um, um, but it's more like a, a runner identity um, than it is a political identity. It's something that, you know, ties them together as people who like to hunt or shoot in competitions or go to the range, um, um, but isn't relevant to their political behavior. Um, uh, but that alternative world doesn't exist, of course. Um, um, that, that, that group identity is relevant um, um, to many gun owners' political behavior. Um, and I argue that that's a product of the NRA's decision over time to frame uh, gun politics, to frame the gun control issue um, in identity-based terms, which is to say that when the NRA um, appeals to its members, um, it doesn't say, you know, you should oppose gun control law X, uh, because it contains provisions Y and Z that are, you know, likely to render it ineffective at actually uh, reducing gun violence. Uh, instead, the NRA will say, you know, this represents an attack on who we are. It represents an attack on our values. This is our opponents sort of out to get us um, in a sort of cynical, politically motivated way. Uh, and we have to take action uh, to, to defend ourselves against that threat. Um, um, and, and, you know, one thing, that you can learn from social psychology um, um, is that when people's identities are threatened, they're highly motivated to take political action. And, and I found that to, to be the case um, in the context of, of gun politics, with the NRA having sort of cultivated this identity 
um, 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 at one point in time, and then and then you know among those who hold it, uh, having successfully mobilized them into politics by 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 portraying the identity as threatened. Well, I think you're you're right that one of the very important contributions of your work here is talking about those, as you put it, the ideational resources to connect gun owners to a, a personality type, to an ideology, to a a, a group identity. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating area because I think if most people, if you ask them about identity politics, they would say, well, we're talking about very obvious things like you know, racial and ethnic background, perhaps religion. But you make a very good point. If I can quote your, your book here, uh, all politics is identity politics and understanding political behavior is a matter of figuring out when, why, and how particular identities are salient. So the, you know, the NRA seems, uh, uh, you know, alongside, obviously, there was, there was great uh, uh, raw material there for them to do this, but uh, cultivating an identity among its members, cultivating an ideology among its members, uh, aiming for, and tell me if I'm, if I'm being simplistic about this, but uh, aiming for, as you said, the more emotional appeal, uh, drawing on certain kinds of narratives rather than a more statistical uh, or even uh, even necessarily a legal constitutional uh, 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 appeal to members, but saying, you know, this is something that is uh, a part of uh, an, an attack on who we are as a group. Right. So, you know, there is a certain irony in that I think, uh, as you noted, when, when people talk about identity politics these days, um, it's often uh, used in a sort of pejorative way on the right and the left. Um, yeah, you know, on yeah. the right, the, it's, it's a sort of pejorative because it suggests that, you know, the, the liberals are too concerned, um, 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 you know, with, with things related to, um, um, you know, uh, uh, social justice. Um, um, and on the left, it comes up because there, there are some who think that, you know, the Democrats focus um, too much on issues of, of say, race and gender, and not enough on on economic issues. So there are different sorts of critiques um, of identity politics. But I think that that discourse around identity politics uh, sort of uh, presumes that the only identities um, that we're talking about are those related to to race, uh, gender, maybe religion, and so on. When um, um, you know, I, I think we should think of lots of, of group. So, you know, the, the famous social psychologist, uh, Henry Tajfel, uh, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing basically defines social identities as any group membership one, one is aware of, um, um, and that has emotional significance to them. So there are lots of, of, of group memberships we all hold, um, that can, that can comprise identities. Um, um, and there's a lot of compelling work out there that shows that um, those identities are, are really important drivers of individuals' political behavior. Um, um, and in that sense, it's not as though um, um, uh, the NRA and gun owners are truly unique. Like, you know, that, that's to say that it's not as though other folks in politics are, are not motivated by identity. I think the NRA uh, stands out though, because it's this organization that has really carefully cultivated an identity over time. So, you know, rather than just sort of tapping into uh, pre-existing identities that existed in the world um, in, in sort of convenient or opportunistic ways, the NRA has sort of defined over time what it what it means to be a gun owner um, and how that is connected to politics. And so I say there's a certain irony there because I, I, I don't think it's unfair to say that most that at least a lot of NRA members would, would probably agree with critiques of identity politics. And although I think there are things in the book 
that um, uh, that they would agree with. And, you know, on a fundamental level, to the extent that the book is saying that the NRA is political, politically powerful because its members are politically dedicated, I think that that's actually a flattering point. Um, um, but I could see some pushback on the notion that actually it's because, you know, um, of, of this identity rather than um, um, some higher minded sense of, of rationality. Um, 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 and I'm not saying that identity and rationality are, are necessarily in conflict, but I am saying that when you look at the NRA's appeals over time, um, they're not really focused on uh, statistical evidence. They're, they're focused on, on um, um, you know, threat. They're focused on, 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 on building perceptions of threat uh, in ways that motivate people to act. Um, um, and it's pretty, it's pretty, it comes through pretty clearly, uh, when you analyze those appeals over time. Yeah. You know, the, the mobilization and the cultivation, uh, very effective cultivation of, uh, gun owners identity, this uh, goes a long ways toward answering the, the question or the point you raised earlier about how there's a bit of a, a discrepancy here between, it seems, especially in the, in the 2010s, uh, there is a public interest or a public opinion motivation for more gun control legislation, but that a lot of these things barely even get to the table in Congress uh, or in or in various states. Uh, you know, so despite you know so many high profile mass shootings and a let's call it fifty one percent or greater public desire for gun control, uh, a highly motivated, very uh, let's say emotionally uh, connected group of people uh, has had a certain impact. And I just thought, I don't know if there was a particular case you wanted to, to bring up. I mean, you highlight a lot of these, the, everything from the uh, Firearm Owners Protection Act of, of 1986, the the assault weapons ban, uh, the older ones among us remember this in the 90s, and these more recent efforts. Uh, does, does one stick out to you as a, a story worth telling about how you know the NRA, its supporters, and uh, perhaps you know, through various, uh, various methods of persuasion have, uh, have basically either, either kept the status quo intact or have even in some cases winnowed away at, at some of the state laws you mentioned to make a, a gun control, in fact, actually less stringent. Does anything stick out to you as a, as a story worth telling? So I think one story worth telling relates actually to the aftermath of the passage of the Brady Bill and the assault weapons ban uh, in the 1990s. So, you know, by the 90s, and, and I think that, that, that both the passage of those, those, those pieces of legislation and their aftermath really speak to contemporary gun politics. So on the one, t- on the one hand, the fact that the Brady Bill and the assault weapons ban passed in the early 90s shows a clear downside of the NRA's alignment with the Republican Party. Um, uh, uh, because Democrats had unified control of government at that point in time, and the, and the NRA uh, had become aligned with the Republican Party, that meant that, that gun legislation was probably more likely to pass then than it had been basically since the Gun Control Act of 1968 had passed. Having said that, the aftermath of those laws, I think, uh, um, speak to uh, uh, um, uh, the NRA's power in two different ways. So one, one way is, is, is that the organization's reputation has often preceded itself um, um, in recent years in ways that have uh, discouraged policymakers from pursuing gun control at all. So, uh, you know, the 1994 midterms, uh, which were the first elections held after the Brady Bill and assault weapons bans passed, um, um, were, were, were pretty devastating for Democrats. Democrats uh, really, you know, um, um, suffered um, um, in those elections. And uh, there was 
a belief uh, among democratic politicians, whether accurate or not, um, that uh, um, um, their, their decision to pass gun control had really cost them votes. And so rather than those victories in the early 1990s sort of building momentum on behalf of the gun control cause, they actually, the, the, the midterm results following them actually had this chilling effect, um, um, or even Democrats after that saw the issue as one that was more likely to lose them votes than to gain them votes. So they weren't dying, even though they had become the party of gun control, they weren't dying in the aftermath of that um, um, uh, to really push the issue. And then on top of that, you know, in, in, in the years since then, we've mostly witnessed uh, periods of, of, of divided um, um, government rather than um, um, unified government. And when we've had unified democratic government, it's often been brief windows of time um, um, in which anything that the party wants to get done, it feels like it needs to get done really quickly. Um, um, and so uh, what that means is that there are these long periods of divided government where even if the, the NRA's allies don't, say, control the White House, um, um, it's still typically able to, to sort of kill gun control uh, so long as its allies in the Republican Party, you know, control either uh, uh, Chamber of Congress or, you know, in more recent times um, um, have, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, at least have uh, uh, 40, um, you know, enough enough senators um, um, in, in, in enough senators to, to filibuster um, pieces of legislation. Um, um, uh, and so it's the situation in which. Um, following you know, those 1990s laws, um, anytime Republicans had some power, it would be really hard to pass federal level gun control. And the times in which Democrats had unified control of government, they weren't dying to make gun control one of their very top priorities. Um, um, on that last point, I'll say that I do think things um, are changing. I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see federal level gun legislation passed super soon, but I do think um, that issue is is higher uh, um, 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 on the list of the Democrats' priorities now um, than it has been in a really long time, uh, and I think that that's uh, mostly a product of the efforts of gun control activists um, um, who uh, have 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 really um, gained momentum over the past ten years or so. Um, um, yeah. Well, you raise a good point about how uh, whether or not we want to give. Uh, or, or imagine that the NRA has, uh, you know, maybe the, the kind of veto power that I think some people imagine it having. They're operating within a political system that is itself, as we all know, in the last decade or so dominated or defined by gridlock, by by polarization. The parties have moved further apart. And I, it seems to me, and this is we're getting near the end with our last few questions here, but it seems to me that in this evolution, the polarization has paralleled how the Republican Party and the NRA have grown closer, at least in the case of Donald Trump. And I think I'd be remiss not to ask you to talk about this. Um, Donald Trump, very loud and proud uh, represent, representative of NRA interests, going to speak to them at their at their gatherings. Uh, can you talk a bit about the close ties between Trump and the NRA? And do you think that even if Trump himself is no longer, again, in politics, that Trumpism can harness, harness this and that that close connection remains for the for the years to come? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because I think the NRA's close ties with Donald Trump, which were deeper than you know the NRA's sort of standard ties uh, with Republican uh, policymakers, uh, uh, really demonstrate um, um, you know the, the power of the sort of worldview and identity that the NRA had cultivated around guns. Because Donald Trump was not, in my opinion, uh, an obvious 
ally uh, for the NRA. Um, you know, he had previously stated support for gun control, um, um, you know, and, and as a sort of uh, New York City billionaire does not exactly personify um, the image around which the NRA, uh, around, you know, which the NRA is built around gun ownership. Um, um, having said that, though, he really um, spoke the NRA's language and the language of its supporters um, in terms of, of, of promoting the sort of uh, 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 um, national right wing, nationalistic, populistic um, worldview um, 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 that, that the NRA had been promoting actually since the early 2000s um, um, and that, you know, Trump became the sort of the, the sort of most vocal um, 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 proponent of within Republican politics. So when you think about it in that way, it's easier to understand um, the NRA's ties with Trump and Trumpism um, and its place in the Republican Party during the Trump years. Um, I think one thing that'll be interesting to see moving forward is the extent to which, you know, the NRA's future uh, in, in both Republican politics and politics more generally is or is not tied to um, um, the place of, of Trumpism. Um, in in American politics, um, you know, I, I think around the time of the insurrection, um, I I was one who you know sort of on record as saying that I, I I think you know if the insurrection leads to a rejection of Trump and Trumpism, um, that's going to be bad uh, for the NRA because it might be a, a sort of opening for the Republican Party to shift in a new direction, um, one that that does not uh, you know promote the sort of of, of right wing populistic nationalistic worldview associated with both Trump and the NRA, um, but does something different. Um, and that could be, you know, a party in which the NRA's place is, is, is smaller. Um, um, and it could be, um, um, you know, and if that were to happen, it could be a world in which maybe some um, Republican legislators would be more likely to break ranks, ranks on the gun control issue. I still think uh, that, you know, if the answer to those questions is that the party pivots away from Trumpism, that that would be bad for the NRA. But I'm now less confident um, 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 and I would even say, you know, unconfident <laughs> um, um, that the party is is actually um, um, pivoting away from Trumpism, um, um, something that I, I thought looked more likely in the aftermath of the insurrection, but that, you know, has, has sort of turned back um, in the time since. So I, I don't I don't. I, I think, uh, at least for uh, the time being, the NRA's place um, in the place of, of, of gun rights and the sort of general worldview that the NRA has built um, um, are going to stay basically the same um, within within GOP politics. Yeah, I, I, in a way, it's an unfair question for because I've, you know, we're we're we have to, of course, take into account this GOP civil war and how it's shaking out. And I, I think I agree with you. Six months ago, I might have thought that. Uh, Trumpism would become marginal. And now I just, I think that uh, Trump and his supporters are still too important to the party for anyone to make a bold move. And so uh, something like uh, gun rights, this is not, this is not a, a, a hill to die on if you're a Republican. And like you said, as a, if one is a Democrat in Congress or in a state legislature, uh, you better have the votes. And, and even then perhaps a, a, a Republican appointed judge might overturn something. And so um, is there anything else in your in, in, in your conclusion, you bring up some other possibilities uh, before we go? Is there anything else that you'd like to add that you see as a possibility either for the NRA, uh, the two parties uh, for gun rights legislation and, or pardon me, gun control legislation and so on? Anything else that uh, we, we didn't have time to get to? So, I mean, I, I guess there are just two quick things that I'd note. Um, um, one is that even if the Republican Party doesn't pivot away from Trumpism, um, you know, it's possible that, that all these politics uh, will shift 
um, if um, uh, Democrats start winning a lot of national elections in ways that eventually um, um, sort of you know force the Republican Party from a competitive perspective um, to shift gears. I don't know that that's going to happen, and if so, I don't know you know when. Uh, but I think that that's one way that the politics of this issue could shift. And then I'd also just note that um, I really focus a lot on federal level gun control, um, but of course. Uh, state politics these days are a bit more dynamic in ways that can go either direction, to be clear. So on the one hand, um, um, you know, the NRA has had a lot of state level successes in terms of, of not just defeating gun control, but expanding gun rights. On the other hand, uh, you know, the, the prospects for uh, gun control activists to get things done, I think, are are greater uh, on the state level than on the federal level. So I think some attention, if you're interested in gun policy, to that level of government um, is, a, is appropriate. Um, and then, you know, the last thing I want to note, because I think all of this, at least for um, listeners who support gun control, um, might sound a little doomy and gloomy. Um, so I do want to note that I think, you know, if you were to apply lessons from my book on the NRA to gun control activists, uh, I think that their more recent efforts align with with you know what I would probably uh, prescribe, and they also align with you know um, um, uh, the insights of, of of Kristen Goss, for example, who wrote Disarmed, which I think is the best book um, on the gun control movement. Which is to say that that gun control activists have been personalizing the issue, um, 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 or you know, in my language, connecting it to to important political identities that people hold um, to a greater extent the past 10 years or so than they have in the past. And, and I think the realities of the sort of institutional environment in which policy is made in the U.S. Um, are such that on the federal level, you know, they're going to have to maintain those efforts over time. But I think that they can maintain those efforts over time. And if they do, um, I, I think that there'll be, um, um, you know, uh, more openings, you know, in the years to come uh, than in the years prior. Uh, 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 so I just, I guess I wanted to get that in because I, I don't think this NRA influence, I think, you know, I think the NRA is in a, because of, 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 you know, the, the nature of the institutional system and the, the sort of uh, place of gun rights within partisan environment these days, it, it is pretty hard to pass gun control on the federal level. But, but I, uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to gloss over uh, the the ways in which the issue has changed over the past 10 years, um, uh, because I think those are important and they may show up um, at some point down, down the line. Well, I think you've done a great job of documenting the subject. And I, I will put in a word as a as a, a, an informal reviewer to conclude uh, the book Firepower, how the NRA turned gun owners into a political force. I think it's a it's a very well researched, very readable. I think one does not have to be a specialist at all to read this and to gain a lot from it. So uh, Matthew Lacombe, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks a lot for having me. This was great. Take care.